Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. guys, Ryan here. I'm recording this intro right now in the airport on my way home from the Midwest Conference on the Unknown in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. This inaugural multifaceted conference brought together researchers in all fields of study into the anomalous. I had the immense pleasure of meeting some of you at this event. So to each and every one of you who came up to my table or came to my lecture and introduced yourselves and had a conversation with me, thank you. It truly meant the world to me to meet you and chat everything UFOs. I can't express how honored and touched I was that some of you traveled so far just to see me and the other speakers. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And to all the new people I met as well, welcome to Somewhere in the Skies. I hope you enjoy everything that we do here at the show. This episode includes some incredible conversations I had with some of the speakers at the event. You'll hear interviews I conducted live on site with paranormal power couple Tobias and Emily Wayland of the Singular 14 Society as we run through some of their previous and latest investigations and what comes next for their upcoming research and book projects. You'll also hear a fun discussion I had with noted cryptid researcher Ken Gerhardt on the evidence and possibility for the existence of both the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot. We then dive deep into a highly controversial discussion with researcher Joshua Cutchin as he presents a fascinating argument for UFOs possibly being a symbol of death and the connections between UFO phenomena and the soul. We then wrap things up with a highly enjoyable chat with the liminal librarian herself, Courtney Block, as she traces the origins of cyclical and paranormal investigations and the importance of libraries and literature when studying the unknown. This was such a rewarding experience from the moment I arrived in Cape Girardeau to this moment right now of waiting to go home. My immense thanks to conference organizers Michael Huntington and Ken Murphy for inviting me and for making this one of the most welcoming conferences I've ever had the pleasure of being at. To the entire staff, crew, and volunteers for Cape Events, this truly was a conference that will become the standard for events like this. So thank you to all of you. And rumor is there's already a plan for next year. So I can't wait to see what this event will become in the future. And I hope you'll all check it out in Missouri. 
And I also hope you enjoy this special episode live from the Midwest Conference on the Unknown. And as always, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the skies. Hey guys, this is Ryan Sprague reporting live from the Midwest Conference on the Unknown. We are in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, uh, and we are on the second day of the event. I spoke last night. It was fantastic. And two of the individuals who were at my talk are two of my favorite people working in the 14 realm of the unknown, and that is Tobias and Emily Whalen. Guys, Welcome back to Somewhere in the Skies. So happy to be here, Ryan. Always Thank a you. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Looks like we got something going on. So we will, we, hopefully it'll quiet down a little bit in here. As you guys can hear, um, it's been pretty good today. It has. Yeah, yeah. I know um, this is the first annual Midwest Conference on the Unknown. Um, so I want to ask you guys first and foremost. Also, I love your shirt, by the way. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Emily has a Hellfire Club shirt on for you Stranger Things fans. What do you What do you sport in here? Oh, uh, this would be my Don't Talk to Strangers shirt <laughs> featuring uh, some kids uh, being potentially accosted by a saucer occupant. Yep, yep. Yeah. Very scholastic book, which I love. I love. The vibe is uh, That's cool. what I always appreciate you guys always look so stylish <laughs> you're paranormal and 14 and stuff um but let me ask you how has it been so far at this conference it's the first one i don't know about you guys but i was super excited to get the call to be here um i don't get to the midwest often i'm a, I'm a city boy on the east coast but um yeah how's everything going so far here what makes this i guess unique well this is area? Been- yeah, well, this has been this has been great. Um, it's something that we have needed here pretty desperately for for some time. You know, uh, now we've we've always had Haunted America, which is a, a fantastic conference. It's a great paranormal conference over in in uh, Alton, uh, that's Alton, Illinois. But um, you know, that was really largely centered around ghosts and hauntings and things. Of course, thus the name Haunted America. Um, and and while it's it's a fantastic event it was about the only thing we had you know and so having another event that actually um sort of broadens its its scope into other areas you know of of, of interest uh, uh it's not just ghosts you've got ufos you've got uh, cryptids uh alien abduction you know contactees it's, uh, all, all, all areas of of weirdness i think is something that that we've been missing for for some time because something that I've always been jealous of, you know, especially for everybody living out uh, out east, is how many conferences you guys have. Right. Like, there's so many. Like, if if you look at just like the the southeastern U.S. and then sort of like down into you know like Texas, Arkansas, like Kentucky, there are so many paranormal conferences, and we have had like basically none for most of the the. Uh, Midwest, and now you know, other than like haunted America for for so so long, um, that it's just something that's that's been desperately needed. And so to be at this conference and see it doing so well, to see yeah. the kind of turnout that I can't it's had the turn. yeah. for a first year conference, this kind of turnout is not something I have experienced. Now Emily and I both 
have been to a lot of first time conferences where you know you're talking to a crowd of three people. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been there too. Yeah. yeah, and so this is the literal like for anybody listening, this is the literal opposite of that. Like, there's so many people here. It's just what uh, what a, 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 a uh, honor, frankly, to just be able to be a part of it. You know, I'm hoping that this will go on for years and years, and we'll yeah. get to say, "Hey, we were at the first one." Yeah, you know, yeah. and then we've been at every one since. Right. So. And I have no doubt you guys are going to be speaking next year. I yeah, mean, well, that's pretty we just obvious. confirmed it. Yeah. Okay, so awesome. You heard Looking it here for- first, guys. Someone, this guy's <laughs> the singular fourteen society will be here next year speaking. Emily, what are your initial thoughts on? the event and what do you take away from it so far? I think it's really great. Um, it's definitely, you can definitely tell there's a community here in Cape Girardeau that's like kind of like finally coming together. Cause I know the event company that is putting this on has done like a comic con and an anime con. And I think, I think there's a lot of, I think sometimes those can be kind of adjacent to what we do. So I think this lets all the locals let all their weird out. <laughs> And really get in, dig into what they love. Because, I mean, we all love, like, anime and Comic-Con conventions, too. But this, I think, if you really want to dig into it, this is the opportunity to do that. So it's cool to see the local community kind of rise up and put this together. And That's the value of it, you know. And, and I'm glad that, that you touched on that. Because, literally, I think the number one thing we hear at events like this is how happy so many of the attendees are to to finally have a place where they can discuss their experiences without judgment. You know, and and most people don't have that. I mean, I I know I I sound like a broken record, but really, literally, the most common uh, uh, narrative presented to me by witnesses when they they go to to share their experiences is trying to share them with a a loved one and and, and being laughed at. And, um, you know, obviously that, that leads to people sort of shutting down and then they... They just don't talk about their experience unless they meet someone like us mm-hmm. or they find an event like this. And so there is great social value, I think, in having these events for people to be able to to discuss things that um, you know they might not dare discuss with you know, even their their family members. Right. Well, I mean, touching on reports. Now, uh, I believe the last time I had you on, Tobias, we talked about your book, Strange Tales. We also had you on to talk about the Lake Michigan Walkman. Sure. So I'd love to ask you guys. Um, a lot of people, you know, when you hear that there's like a wave of something um, it's like there, it's there for a while, and then it's gone. Um, but I want to ask, you know, in terms of this Lake Michigan Walkman, this weird period in time where this winged humanoid is being seen um, in that area of all places. Uh, is this continuing? Are you guys still getting reports over at the Society of like these sort of flying humanoids? Or sure. Where does that all stand? Yeah, you know, like we, we do still get reports. And, and, and honestly, for the uh, record, um, people never stopped seeing winged humanoids in West Virginia either. Right. Um, you know, the the collapse of the, the Silver Bridge didn't signify the ending of those sightings. It just signified the ending of Keel's book. Um, so in terms of what we've been seeing uh, around Lake Michigan, we do continue to, to, to get sightings. Um, you know, uh, I've got one uh, that came in recently from a woman down in, in Rockford uh, where she was uh, outside with her uh, mother. And they, they saw this uh, black uh, humanoid winged creature, you know, flying along this canal behind their uh, their, their house. Um, and um, 
it was interesting, you know, because I, I, I talked to her at, at length over the, the phone. Um, and, um, you know, certainly she, she believed that she'd seen something quite strange, you know, and there's, there's, there's sort of no denying that, uh, that this, uh, experience had a, a, a profound, um, effect on her as, 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 as they so often do. You know, um, I, I just spoke to, uh, another gentleman in, uh, Madison, uh, that's Madison, Wisconsin, um, who, uh, and this is a, a particularly, uh, bizarre, Sighting reports. Uh, he was at the dog park, and this is actually a dog park that, that Emily and I used to go to when 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 we lived over there. It's a Quan dog park, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And uh, and he was out there. You know, he had his dog. He actually had his infant son strapped to his chest as well, which is important later because it's why he didn't run after anything. And uh, he saw there's this wooded area over by these these train tracks, and there's there's like a creek with a bridge and stuff back there. And he saw what uh, he described to me as this uh, this bulky, shadowy figure. He said it looked like maybe it had you know like football shoulder pads on, and then like a cloak thrown over that. Um, and uh, it's 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 all black, and he says it was kind of peeking out from uh, behind a tree at him, and that when it it, it noticed that he had noticed it, uh, it kind of hunkered down and spread out as though it was trying to hide, and uh, and he watched it for maybe you know ten twenty seconds, and uh, then he was momentarily uh, distracted because he had to pay attention to his dog, and he turns back and and the thing is gone, and. Um, it you know it was a, a, a very strange sighting. Um, it could have been a lot of things, frankly. Uh, you know, I I, I, I can't rule out. Um, you know, there's a there's a, a homeless population in Madison, of course, uh, and uh, it during the summer, a lot of people sleep outside, and uh, and so the idea of somebody you know being in a sleeping bag or something uh, that and they were just camping out in those woods um, because this this was at like nine a.m. You know. Um, Oh, that's I, you don't hear that often, right? It's no, that's what's weird about night. it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and so, like, you have to consider that as a possibility. Now, we haven't been able to to, to go out there and, and check out the area yet, but uh, but we'll be headed out there soon. And of course, we'll go back in the the, the woods and, and look for any sign of, of, of habitation. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to go back there and screw with anybody's stuff. Yes, or like, I'm not, say, I'm not there to, to like <laughs> roust any any you know any any unhoused persons or anything out of that. Uh, out of out of those woods, but we can look around safely and, and just sort of see if it looks like people have been back mm-hmm. there. And if and if so, um, then that's probably mystery solved. But if not, then I'm sort of at a loss, frankly. Yeah. You know, um, because again, this was a guy who uh, who talked to me um, in, and and, and he's very earnest. Uh, he certainly wasn't trying to embellish anything. He didn't have. Uh, his own real prevailing theory about what it was. Um, you know, he mentioned that he had related it to the, the Mothman when he first told the story because um, he sort of uh, 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 guessed that maybe some of the bulkiness could have could have been wings. I mean, it was all very speculative, of course. Um, but that's not something that, you know, that's not a hill he was willing to die on or anything. So... You know, uh, he he didn't seem like he had a real um, agenda or anything that he was pushing in terms of belief or anything. So um, it's just one of those uh, uh, weird um, reports that you know we'll we'll look into um, and uh, and see if we can find anything. But at the end of the day, we may just have to be satisfied with not having an answer. Yeah, but that's that's so many of these. You know, what are you going to do? Interesting, interesting. Um, and again, that's what I respect about what you guys do. It's not just you hear a report 
and that's you know that's it. Um, you have an intimate knowledge of the location where this event happened, so you can go investigate. You mm-hmm. can try to find a prosaic explanation. Which, when it comes down to it, that's what we're looking for. When when you can't find that explanation, that's when you right. have a true unexplained. Well, what I, I, I like to say is. If we don't explain the things we can, why would anybody believe us about the things we can't? You know? Um, so we absolutely have to. You know, I, I want people to be able to look at our work and say, well, look, if they couldn't explain it, there's a good chance it can't be explained because by their reputation, we know these are people who are going to go uh, and, 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 and do their due diligence to try to explain something if it's possible. Right. So, yes, absolutely. Um, Emily, I'd love to ask. I know we kind of talked off off air here about sure. um, a merman. Yeah, so <laughs> so I don't even know where to begin with this, but I know you guys were <laughs> submitted a report sure. about this. If well, you, you want to share it. it, it's totally up to you. But I would love to hear about this. So this was actually a case referred to us from a friend of ours, Travis Watson, and so we've just started looking into this. So okay. this is the uh, testimony of the. Uh, gentleman that we've been talking with. Back in the 1980s, my family would go to Geneva on the lake in Ohio, Lake Erie, to stay at a cabin every summer. One time I was out past the rock pier, things playing on an intertube, inner tube, I'm guessing is that what that says, and I saw what looked like a head from the mouth of, up about 20 yards further out. I knew I was the only kid out there at the time, so I was really confused who it could have been. I watched it for maybe half a minute then looked back at the beach to see who it might be, but everyone was still on the beach. When I turned around, it was gone. I thought maybe it was a log, but I spent the rest of the day watching because it scared me a lot, but nothing else surfaced. It's one of those childhood memories that was so profound that when I think about it, I feel like I'm back in that moment. That's yeah. That's it is. It is very interesting. This actually came in uh, because of an appearance that uh, that Travis had had on uh, Paul Bastal's podcast uh, of uh, monsters and, and, and mysteries, and so the witness initially reached out to Paul, who then uh, who then sent it to Travis, who then sent it to us. He was like, "Well, this is weird enough for you guys." Like it gave I think. a telephone. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. So uh, you know, and, and we do have permission to, to reach out to this witness, and uh, being you know as busy as we have been with the conference, we haven't yet done that. But yeah. you know, um, it, it sounds promising, and it's one of those where um, I it's it seems too weird to be made up. You know, um, I, I don't know why necessarily like uh, somebody would. Um, you know, uh, uh, try to perpetrate like that kind of hoax. And, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not particularly naive, you know, like I understand that there are people who, who like to play pranks and, 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 and will make things up, but this doesn't really have a lot of the, the hallmarks of that to me. Um, you know, it, again, it, just looking at the actual report submitted, um, you know, it, it, there's not a lot of added detail. Uh, the guy just talks very simply about seeing what appeared to be like a humanoid head coming up out of the water, you know, um, mm-hmm. at the, the mouth of this river coming off of, of Lake Erie. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, on its surface, it seems like a, a, a credible enough report, you know, because there, there are various possibilities in terms of misidentifications and, and things like that that we would have to, to consider. And so I wouldn't, just because it is 
somewhat uh, outlandish in terms of the creature being reported, uh, you know, that's not enough for me to dismiss something uh, uh, out of hand. Yeah. You know? Right. So it's definitely one that we're going to be following up on. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And should be pretty interesting. You know, we have friends out in Ohio that uh, I think could, could help us uh, investigate this, get some boots on the ground, and have someone to go out there. Um, and so, uh, yeah, should uh, should lead to, to something pretty cool, I think. Nice. Open investigation. Stay right. tuned, guys. Stay <laughs> tuned on the merman phenomenon. <laughs> um, well, you guys have been doing this for a while. And you've investigated, you've um, archived and preserved a lot of these stories. What has been some of the, I guess, weirdest or most impactful things you've looked into? I, I don't know your guys' beliefs on a lot of this stuff. I would sure. assume you're very objective. Um, that's what I gather from the, the diligent work you do. But, um, yeah, what are some of those moments and the journeys that you've had in these topics that have really stood out to you and made you think, wow, like, uh, the world is far stranger than I ever could have imagined. Anything stick out to you guys? Yeah, I think there's been a couple times, you know, when when we first started doing this, I was more curious in the topic. Um, obviously, Tobias had been investigating with MUFON before, um, and I'd had my own, like, couple of experiences, but I guess going into this, I didn't really expect to experience as much as we had on investigations we've gone on boots on the ground as described um we frequently go out to the kettle moraine state forest with our friend jay bachochin he's a sasquatch researcher out of um southeastern wisconsin and i have seen some lights in the woods that i cannot explain um i know people like to talk about orbs and all that stuff but i i mean twice now i've seen these bright white balls of light one time just soar and arc over the treetops and the other time it kind of like fell straight down amongst the trees and it's weird because it would illuminate the treetops it was quiet and there was no other like weather explanations Mm -hmm. that we could find or aircraft or anything like that that would explain it so seeing those lights out in the woods that people talk about so often was kind of wild to me Um, and just quickly too I'll mention that a couple times we've seen haunted, we've been on haunted locations. I'm a photographer and I've had my equipment malfunction in ways that I cannot explain. So that's been having those experiences firsthand is just completely wild. There's absolutely yeah. weird stuff out there. Well, and, and when she says malfunction in a way that she can't explain, uh, she means like having the flash detached from her camera. With no batteries in it, and it's still going off. Whoa. Right. Like, that, that, that level was, of, of, yeah. of unexplained. Was this while you were trying to take photographs of something? Of an anomaly? Oh, uh, well, we were... This this particular time... I mean, obviously, there's more of this, but this is probably most profound. We were at the Al Ringling... Can't talk. We were at the Al Ringling Mansion in Baraboo, Wisconsin. Okay. And we had been kind of being... We're being shown around... And I, we were in between rooms, and I wanted to change my lighting kit for a darker area. So we kind of went out into the foyer, and I started, I, you know, I took, took my flash, I took the batteries out, and all of a sudden it was just going flash, flash, flash. And you look over me at, like, 
Oh, yeah. Like, seriously, I thought she was just taking a bunch of pictures with her flash, like, right next to my head. And I'm like, would you what not you get off? Doing? Yeah, and I see her. She's, like, like she's down on, on one knee, like, having everything taken apart. And she's just, like, looking at me with this confused look on her face with, like, the batteries in one hand and the flash in the other. And it's just going off. And I'm like, well, I don't know. And this Call was, an exorcist. I don't know yeah, what's yeah, happening yeah. here. This We had just been in the room that was Al Ringling's old office that a lot of people have seen apparitions in and other phenomena. So immediately following that, that was interesting. And I think at the time, if I recall, we were talking about the room a little bit. Sure. So that I thought that was interesting, but I've never, I mean, I, it was so frustrating to have my flash just going yeah. off because yeah. I'm like, no, what are you doing? Is it broken? What's happening? So, right. Well, I promise, I know what I'm doing. And it never happened again. No. It, well, it there, worked there, fine, I still have it. There should have been no power source. It right. Shouldn't, it shouldn't have been possible, which is which is why it's so weird, obviously. Well, before Tobias, I get to um, maybe some of your personal experiences. Sure. Uh, the lights in the forest. Um, you know, we just watched a talk by um, Ken Gerhardt, who talked about... Mm-hmm. Um, he's not a big proponent of these ideas of... Um, <laughs> crossing streams as it were with these <laughs> sure. phenomenology sure, yeah. um, in terms of UFOs and Bigfoot and mm-hmm. I actually I've been digging into a lot of old Project Blue Book reports mm-hmm. where um, Bigfoot like creatures have been cited in correlation with UFOs mm-hmm. uh, these are official documented reports right. um, so you can't really ignore that in my personal yeah. opinion um, what do you think about these ideas. Um, I, um, are they connected? Is there? I think it's totally possible. And I yeah. think, you know, before I got into this, I think it's, and I think this, I still entertain this, obviously. Like, I think to most people, an undiscovered biological creature makes the most sense within it. But, um, you know, and it, you, probably several years ago, I would have been like, Bigfoot and UFO. No, no. But, like, it, to me, it makes more sense almost than the natural explanation. Because, I I do think the universe is a huge place. I do think we've been visited. I think they're aware of us. I think there's absolutely aliens out there. Who's to say that Bigfoot isn't an alien and that's a UFO put it down and he's checking it out and he can go back up, you know? Yeah. Like I I think there's some sense to that. I know it sounds crazy, but it it makes more sense to me than like portal Bigfoot or which I don't dismiss, but of all the theories, I think that the, it, you know, who's to say that it, a furry human, it looks almost human like we do, but who's to say that that's not from another planet or right. something? So right. I think it does make sense to me. Interesting. What are your thoughts on that? I don't think that we should dismiss the fact that these uh, seemingly disparate phenomena are so often reported in the same areas. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that it would be irresponsible to to dismiss that. Um, beyond that, I don't have a you know any working hypothesis to to explain it. And in correlation, of course, doesn't mean causation. So so we don't know for sure that these things are you know have to be connected in some way. Um, I will say um, you know when when we're talking about lights you know in the the, the kettle. Um, they're not craft, you know, unless it's something uh, we would have to sort of redefine craft, I, I, I suppose. Yeah. You know, because they, they, they really are just anomalous lights. And so you think about it like a light, maybe basketball size. 
you know, floating around. Um, and so I, I don't know that, that I have personally seen anything that would lead me to believe that um, there are nuts and bolts, you know, uh, ET craft coming down, dropping off Bigfoot or piloted by Bigfoot or anything like that. Um, I, I will say that there has been some compelling uh, uh, witness testimony to that effect, which you mentioned, of course, already documented in, in things like Project Blue Book, um, which is all very interesting. But, you know, I, I don't know that any of the, the nuts and bolts uh, ET craft are actually, you know, uh, physical craft in in the way that um, we would conceive of it as opposed to something stranger some sort of projection or, or, or illusion or manipulation or something in some way especially when you get into really high strangeness stuff like 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 bigfoot driving it um you know it almost takes on this this dreamlike quality uh you know of of that that oz factor you know um, of of just being so very very strange that it's difficult to sort of reconcile it using um our, our current, you know, understanding of like uh, the the material uh, universe, um, and so I guess you know when it if if, if I want to speculate, you know, I I think that you know maybe something uh, similar to to, to what um, you know like Keel would say about ultra terrestrials or something where you know he would note uh, uh, anomalous lights being seen in the same areas as as these creature sightings and. You know, I, I think his thing was that the creatures themselves were uh, projections of some sort, and the lights themselves might actually be the actual uh, entities or how they really appear, um, which is an interesting idea, and I don't know that to be true. Um, you know, but it, it does lead me to speculate about things like interdimensionality and, you know, maybe lights being some sort of like epiphenomenon that is a byproduct of. Of you know uh, uh, interdimensional travel or something similar. Um, there's a lot of weird places you can actually go with it. Um, it's all, of course, very unproven. I do think that um, we should be willing to let our minds wander in those directions instead of just you know automatically dismissing them as as crazy. Because I think if there's one thing that um, you know we we should have learned. Uh, throughout the, uh, the the history of, of human civilization, is that um, imagination and, uh, and 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 speculation are driving forces behind discovery, and uh, and and when we limit those, we we limit ourselves and we we, we limit what's possible, and um, and and I, I don't think that's going to be doing us any favors in terms of actually investigating this stuff. So. The world is full of dreamers, and without them, like, where would we be today? Look at, like, science fiction. Right. Eventually, most of it becomes science fact, and if it mm-hmm. weren't for these forward-thinking people, like, where would we be today? I think you're right. It really does uh, limit the possibilities. I know when I first got involved with UFOs, and I'd get reports that would have really high strangeness aspects or, um, you know... They would claim to be abducted, but then over there is uh, one of their their loved ones who had passed away. I'm like, whoa, okay, I can't deal with both of these. Let's focus on the UFO. Whereas now, I'm like looking at back at past Ryan and being like, what the hell are you thinking? Mm-hmm. Like, that's part of the data. That's part mm-hmm. of the report. That's part of this person's experience. You have to, you have to at least, like you said, entertain that and look at it. Um, and I think now. I've learned if we're going to use like photography, like to zoom out more, look mm-hmm. at the bigger picture, and realize yeah. that there can be connections, or maybe not. But you have to at least look at it. So, right. 
I, I love that. I love that. Well, Tobias, what are what have been some of your most impactful or weirdest um, or strangest reports or investigations you've been on? Sure. What what has made you guys be like super like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we're, this is our lives. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, for, for me, of course, now I, I got into this because of a, a lifetime of, of um, you know, seemingly paranormal phenomena happening to and around me. But, you know, I, putting that aside, because, yeah, it's it's one thing for me to, to, to make a claim, you know, that uh, that is personal, personal to me. Um, I would say that the most impactful uh, reports in, in, that, that we've received in cases we've investigated are those where I can really see the profound effect that the experience has had on the uh, witness. And so there are a couple of those. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, McGuanago, Wisconsin, um, where there was a, a winged humanoid sighting. Um, and for anybody who's not familiar, uh, it's basically this... this this small rural community uh, just south of, of Milwaukee, basically, mm-hmm. and um, and meeting this gentleman who had who uh, had contacted us about uh, his experience in, in broad daylight and sort of seeing the fear and confusion on his face and and how difficult it was for him to to speak about it and how weird and awkward it must have been for him to be willing to let these two strangers come to his house and show us around um, and, and and everything that had to go into that and uh, and how anybody could take those things into consideration and not take that man's experience seriously is offensive. It mm-hmm. is. Um, because regardless of what you think happened, it, it something happened to him. You know? And, uh, and, and because of that, I think we owe people the the common decency of of respecting their experiences and, and taking them seriously. I love that. It reminds me, you know, I spent a weekend in the woods in the Adirondack Mountains with uh, a group of alien abductees. Hmm. I was invited to come and just experience whatever that would be. And I remember being having so many feelings before going of like anticipation of like what could happen Mm -hmm. or what wouldn't happen um and i just remember being like just go just go and experience it don't Mm -hmm. have any preconceived notions or judgment on these people and you know i i kind of went into that this was early on in my my investigative days of um of being like this will make a cool story and I look back at myself and how naive that was to be like, wow, cool story, bro. But <laughs> at, but when you actually get there and you meet these people and you see how it affects them. I mean, we had times where we were sitting around a you know campfire and people were breaking down crying. Mm-hmm. And like, what do you do with that? Th- this, this person went through something clearly traumatic, no matter what it was. Mm. Right. And it affected them. Um, and I think that was a moment for me to really, um, you know become humble and realize wow like this this is not just a story this is so much more to this person and ultimately could you know be have profound implications on humanity Mm -hmm. if any of this is true aliens are actually abducting people like just think of the um the ethical moral dilemmas that we have with that if they were to finally show themselves and and we say look at what you've done to us for whatever 70 plus years of taking us and like what do you do with that so i 
I love that idea of no matter what happened, like paying that respect to the individual who had the courage to come forward. I, I think that's that's paramount for sure, for sure. Well, I got to ask you guys, what comes next? I know you're always on investigations. Um, you've got books. You've got articles. Um, yeah, what what comes next for the Singular Fourteen Society? Well, you know, we're we're, we're going to continue covering weird news, like like we, like uh, we we always do. But uh, we do have a, a book project that uh, that we're pretty excited about um, called the uh, the Singular Fourteen Society's Yuletide Guide to High Strangeness, and uh, it's it's going to be written by me and then illustrated by by Emily, and she's already got some fantastic illustrations that that she made and um and basically what it's what it's shaping up to to be is a, a sort of uh uh comparative analysis of of yuletide myths and legends uh alongside modern day paranormal reports you know so i can give you an, an example you know there's something in iceland called the yule cat and the legend of this yule cat is that it is uh this black cat as big as a house that if you do not receive a, a wool sweater as a gift after the harvest, uh, you might be considered lazy. And um, if if you are so unfortunately judged, um, this thing is going to snatch you away and 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 eat you. Like you're you're just done. And if you look at certain folklorists, like uh, I believe uh, Jan Arneson is, is is one example. Um, excuse me. There are folklorists who believe that um, this legend arose out of a real belief in in some kind of, of creature like this. Now, uh, there's a good chance that its size has been exaggerated over the years until now it's as big as a house, um, but it could have started off much smaller, um, you know, say the size of a, 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 a big cat, you know, like a, a panther or, you know, lion or, or something as you think of a big cat. And the fun thing about that is, we still have people reporting black phantom big cats, you know, that happens today. And so what I have to consider then is, is it possible that this, this particular legend, at least in part has arisen out of, you know, people's uh, experiences with something that we're still experiencing a, a, a mystery that, that still hasn't been solved, you know? And so like that, I think is going to be really the, the the core of of, of what we're we're getting at with this next word. I mean, it's the ultimate stock stocking stepper. Right? <laughs> right. I mean, literally. Yeah, literally. <laughs> even if you're just interested in, in in the actual legends, like of course they're all going to be in there and, and researched and, yeah. and and their origins, at least from what we can find. Because you know, something that that I found in, in trying to to research this stuff is. We don't know where a lot of the things that we still talk about came from. We just don't. You know, like a lot of it has been lost to history. Much of it was never written down. And so we've got, you know, uh, word of mouth stories passed through generations. You know, like most of my ancestors uh, up until, you know, uh, 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 Christian conversion, they didn't have written language. You know, like you think about like the, the Germanic tribes and stuff. Like they weren't writing books with runes, you know, like that's not what those were for. So, if anything was uh, recorded, it was recorded by, you know, Roman historians or, you know, or later on, like, Christian monks or something, you know, um, and that was it, which has led to some real issues with trying to find out where a lot of this stuff, like, the, 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 the origins of, of, of much of these stories. So, um, it's uh, it's just endlessly fascinating to me. It is. It, you know, that, that, that asking questions 
and the mythologies that have been created throughout history. It really does like say more about us than what the actual myths are in many ways. You know, putting that mirror back on ourselves, I think, and trying to understand where we all come from and and the meaning of all of this. I think (laughs) it's it's big, it's broad, it's sweeping, and it's profound. And I just I love that you guys are tackling these things day by day. Um, So, of course, last question: Where can we find everything you guys are up to? All right. Well, you can find us on singular40n.com. We, of course, are on most of the social media platforms out there. Our handle for Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook will be at singular40n. And uh, we've got a Patreon and a YouTube. So, yeah, check us out online. I love it. I love it. Please support the ultimate power couple, guys. Please. please, please. <laughs> thank you. Guys, thank you for joining me on Somewhere in the Skies. Yeah, thank you so thank much you. for having us, Ryan. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. Bigfoot versus Nessie. So with me right now, guys, for the very first time, I believe, on Somewhere in the Skies, yeah. is Ken Gerhardt. Welcome, my man. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate you having me on. And uh, it's good to see you. It's good to meet you in person at last. Uh, I, I don't think we've ever crossed paths before. I, I don't think I couldn't so. remember. Maybe we have, and it's just one of those things that we've forgotten. But, um, yeah, it's great to be here with you, man. So Thank you. Having a good time at this event. It's been great, you know, and I've been a big fan of your work for a long time. Oh, you know, thank as you. As uh, a UFO guy, we don't have that many, um, we don't have the luxury of speaking to cryptozoologists and people who look into the other facets of the unknown. You know, it's an echo chamber of UFO researchers talking about the latest UFO case. But Mm -hmm. what I really like about this conference is we're getting a little bit of everything. Paranormal, supernatural, cryptozoological, UFOs. And um, that's why I love that we can go see each other's lectures. There's time to actually do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested in all of it as well. And, uh, you know, I'm obviously I specialize in cryptozoology. I I always tell people I'm very open-minded. I'm a curious person by nature. And I love... You know, learning about UFOs and paranormal and just hearing what different people have to say and their perspectives and their research, it's, it's always kind of a good time. Absolutely. And I like that you're yeah. open-minded like that because often in these fields, uh, there's camps. There's the UFO people, the ghost people, the, the Bigfoot people, <laughs> and none shall they meet. Um, and I want to get your thoughts on that a little bit later yeah, in the conversation. Sure. You touched on that in your lecture. But um, first, can you tell us a little about what your lecture was about today? Kind of the um, the argument, I guess, you set up. And, um, and, and yeah, tell us a little about what you spoke about. Yeah, thanks. Um, I, I did a presentation that I titled Nessie versus Bigfoot. And it was actually inspired by Godzilla versus King Kong which I think uh, it occurred to me last year when I was watching that movie that, uh, you know, these are two archetypes that are obviously represented in pop culture and movies. You always have these big, hairy ape-man like King Kong and, uh, you know, things like that. And then, of course, Godzilla, to me, kind of represents the, uh, the archetype of the aquatic reptilian monster, kind of serpentine or whatever, and... Um, yeah, so I just basically I wanted to present an argument for both of those cryptids, which are very pop, both very popular, very enduring cryptids, and just talk about you know the best evidence available. Uh, a lot of it, you know, people aren't familiar with, and uh, ultimately, you know, ask the audience to kind of form their own conclusion and vote and see, you know, which one do you think is more likely 
to exist based on you know the evidence that I've presented. So that was kind of the theme. Right. And I know you have books on both, you know, essential yes. guides to each of these. I do. And um, you have a lot of documented cases in the books that I highly recommend people check out. But um, would you be willing to tease a little bit of that evidence with us for each, maybe? A little bit about Nessie, what the most compelling evidence you've come across? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, and I'm sure it's the same in the UFO field or, or paranormal or whatever, but one of the first things that has to be addressed, I think, is that there are a lot of misconceptions. There's always a lot of misinformation out there. People maybe read a book a long time ago or saw one TV show and have drawn you know, conclusions from that. And uh, so in terms of Nessie, the Loch Ness Monster, you know, one of the big misconceptions is that, oh, all that happened a long time ago, you know, way back oh, years and years ago. But I've actually, you know, I'm in, and I correspond with researchers. Uh, there's a guy named Steve Feltham who's been on Loch Ness for 30 years doing research. He's the go-to guy there. And he gets about 10 good reports, sightings every year still. And um, so that, you know, that's the thing is it's, it, Nessie is an ongoing phenomenon. It's not something that happened way back in the 1930s, 60s, or 70s or whatever. Uh, another thing I like to talk about is the sonar evidence. And a lot of people like to fixate on the photographic evidence, which is cool. There are a lot of alleged photographs of Nessie dating back to the 1930s. Um, many of those have been proven through the years to be hoaxes. And uh, people don't realize that. They still are kind of, you know, supporting a lot of the photographic evidence. There are some good videos and films out there, but uh, many that have been debunked. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I ask people to kind of, you know, be a little more objective and critical about the... Um, challenge the photographic evidence but the sonar evidence is what i think people really overlook and you know many people are not aware of the fact ryan that there have been dozens of sonar contacts dating back to 1954 of large unidentified animate things swimming around under the water uh, many of these sonar contacts have been analyzed by sonar experts and scientists and who basically determined that there is something unusual under <laughs> under the water in Loch Ness swimming around, and they're very large and and they move around. So um, so I think that's very compelling. And also, you know, the the eyewitness accounts are very consistent. Um, and again, a misconception is that Nessie is basically a small-headed, long-necked animal that sticks its head out of the water like a sort of an aquatic giraffe <laughs> or a plesiosaur, which is a prehistoric reptile, uh, when in fact 85% of the reports describe a big hump or several big humps that are just protruding out of the water like an upturned boat, and that's what most people describe, and uh, smooth skin. And so as an investigator, I find that, you know, that consistency in the descriptions, you know, and, and again, you could expand that to worldwide and you know, beyond Loch Ness, of course, you have lake monsters that are reported here in the U.S., the Lake Champlain monster. In Canada, there's Ogopogo and many others. Around the world, you have similar lake monsters that are reported. So, um, so yeah, I think that, you know, the, the, the case for the Loch Ness monster is, you know, the fact that you have these consistent eyewitness descriptions that go back decades um, from seemingly incredible people. And uh, then you have the sonar evidence and then, you know, going back in history, of course, you can find things like Nessie and different mythologies and folklores around the world, Native American folklore, Scottish folklore, or whatever. So. Now, um, I want to ask you this question, because this is an argument a lot of skeptics like to make with Loch Ness specifically, is this idea of um, a, 
you got the salt water versus fresh water mm-hmm. debate, you know, that something like that could not survive in the walk, you know, because of that. Um, what do you say to that argument? Of, you know, this creature couldn't live if it was that big, it would not be able to sur- survive in this fresh water. Um, yeah, what's up with all that? Yeah, well, certainly, um, you know, there are smaller species that are called andronomous that travel from freshwater to saltwater. And in fact, Loch Ness has examples of andronomous species like um, salmon. There are salmon runs that come into Loch Ness from the ocean uh, annually. There are eels, populations of eels that travel into the Atlantic Ocean to spawn and then come back in when they're mature. So, uh, But not larger species. You're right about that. Um, there are also invasive things that come into Loch Ness like seals um, that, that occasionally come into Loch Ness. Um, so, you know, you have to look at these things in terms of, you know, uh, the zoology, the zoological aspect, which is that obviously something like a fish has to go through a chemical process called osmoregulation, where it has to adjust the chemicals in its body to adjust from salt water to fresh water, the salt content in the body and things like that. Other types of species, however, like mammals that don't uh, you know, that, that are air breathers, they don't have to go through that process at all. You know, they can go from salt water to fresh water. I just mentioned seals. There are also documented examples of whales that have come into fresh water in different rivers and lakes around the world. And uh, in fact, there are um, species of freshwater cetaceans or dolphins in China and South America and so forth. So it kind of opens the possibilities up, I think, if you if you rule out kind of the the old archetype of Nessie being, you know, either a big fish, like an eel or something like that, or even a reptile, and, you know, maybe expanded into the possibilities of a, you know, of a mammal, which is kind of, you know, where I'm where I personally lean in terms of what I think the Loch Ness Monster represents. Interesting. Okay. Well, now we're talking mammal versus mammal. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to Bigfoot. You know, okay. A lot of what your research has been, um, you've looked into, you've been on so many television shows talking about this cryptid. Um, and I, I heard things today that I had no idea about, you know, the history of Bigfoot and um, what it could be, what it couldn't be. So, yeah, what is some of the compelling evidence you've come across in terms of uh, Bigfoot? Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, first and foremost, I would say, again, the, the anecdotal evidence, which consists of legends and traditions of giant, hair-covered, wild men, uh, that's what they used to call them before the name Bigfoot was created. We used to call them wild men. Uh, different Native American names for Bigfoot, Sasquatch, uh, all translate to either Bushman, Hairy Man, or Wild Man. Uh, but these disparate Native American traditions talk about something that sounds just like a Bigfoot. And then again, worldwide, you have things like the Yeti in, in Asia, the Yeren, the Monday Burung, the Yaoi. So it seems to be a worldwide phenomenon, but if we narrow the scope to, to just Bigfoot or Sasquatch in North America, you have very consistent eyewitness descriptions. Uh, these are, they seem to be hominins, which means they're very human-like in terms of their general form, but of course they're covered in hair, so they would be primitive hominins with primitive features. Um, almost every eyewitness describes very powerfully built, robust uh, creatures with you know, kind of a pointy conical shaped head, which we can find in the fossil record of hominins. That's a, a common feature. Broad shoulders, no neck, 
Uh, but you know, in fact, these animals probably do have a neck. It's just their trapezius muscles are so powerful and their shoulders so powerful that it looks like the head is set right on top of the shoulders. But but uh, very broad shoulders. Uh, you know, I didn't really talk about this during the lecture, but there's something called an intermembral index, which in hominins, great apes, is kind of the ratio of the arms versus the legs. So, for example, in great apes like gorillas and orangutans and chimpanzees, which are brachiators and they live in trees and climb, they have much longer arms in comparison to their legs. The intermembral index is about 67 or somewhere around there. Humans have an intermembral index of about in the low 100s, which means that our legs are pretty long compared to our arms because we walk upright. And Sasquatch seems to have an intramembral index that's exactly halfway between. Mm -hmm. So they do have longer arms compared to humans, but they walk upright, they're bipedal, and so they, you know, they have longer legs than something like a gorilla or an orangutan or whatever. So those things are all pretty consistent. Um, also with Bigfoot or Sasquatch, we have the uh, footprint evidence, the physical trace evidence, which consists of hundreds of castings and photographs of impressions in the ground. Those are very consistent. There's a seems to be a consistent design or morphology to the Sasquatch foot. It's similar to a human foot, but not exactly because they're much heavier and bigger. And uh, so it's a flatter foot with it's much wider, uh, smaller toes in relation to the rest of the foot. No arch, things like that. There's a uh, lot of midfoot flexibility. They seem to, to it's called the mid tarsal break. So that's very compelling. And also we have, you know, I didn't really get into this in the lecture, but we have, uh, you know, some hair samples that are intriguing. Um, no definitive DNA evidence so far. Um, that's a misconception that we have DNA that we don't. Um, and uh, vocalizations. And, of course, the Patterson-Gimlin film, which everyone has seen, which is the, I the iconic you. footage from October 20, 1967. Of course, a lot of people think it's a hoax. But, uh, you know, those of us that have studied the film for decades, and especially now that we've got this great software for stabilizing, enhancing, enlarging, you know, because we've got to remember it came from like an 8mm film that was basically uh, very far away and kind of shaky and stuff. But um, I don't know. I, I You know, I, I still think that that film is pretty convincing in terms of if you really look at the movement of the subject in the film, you can see the muscle mass is very natural. It just doesn't seem like a guy in a suit. You know, that's I think that's where most serious Bigfoot researchers uh, kind of fall. So, especially since it's supposedly supposed to be a female. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we call her Patty. Yeah, uh, Roger Patterson filmed it, and uh, somebody coined the name Patty. Actually, it was uh, some Russian researchers, I believe, Dmitry Bayanov, that came up with the name Patty. Uh, but we can see large, pendulous breasts that, you know, especially when she turns in frame 352, and we can see these large breasts, so we assume it's a female, and gosh, wouldn't that be hard to fake on a costume, I think, I mean, especially back in the 1960s. Why add that specific detail, so... Well, and also, you know, to the, to the film's credit, we have the technology now to stabilize, to enhance, and you can see, like, the muscle ligature and stuff in yeah. this thing it, it's really hard to believe that this could be a costume so the fact that the film still 
stands the test of time and the technology we have today does say a lot, you know, at least in my opinion. It's never been adequately recreated, Ryan, and there's actually a debate going on or a conversation, I should say, in the Bigfoot field right now about, you know, why don't we try to do a, a really good recreation using materials that were only available in 1967 to make a costume. We know the location of the film. It's been relocated thanks to the Bluff Creek Project in California. I visited the film site last year. Uh, a researcher named Daniel Perez, editor of the Bigfoot Times, has acquired the exact camera Patterson had at that time. Of course, we can't find the original film. That would be impossible, so we would have to simulate some of the, the qualities of, the, of that type of film and stuff. But, um, but, you know, there have been some crude attempts at recreating it, and they just look awful. <laughs> like nothing like it. And I think that's where, yeah, again, more evidence for Bigfoot researchers that have seen some of these attempted recreations are like, God, oh, that's immediately recognizable as a guy in a suit. There's absolutely no question about it. So, I don't know. It's, it's a great mystery. Yeah. yeah. It remains a mystery. Uh, two more questions for you, Ken, mm-hmm. if you don't mind. Um, so, uh, the first being, you have done some investigation in Alaska, like somewhere we don't hear about a lot when it comes to this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you had almost a life-threatening incident. Um, would you mind sharing, if it's not too traumatic for no, you, it's not. It's happened? not. It's actually more embarrassing than traumatic. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I did host a, co-hosted a series called Missing in Alaska in 2015 for the History Channel. And we were up there. You know, it's true, Alaska does have a just a remarkable number of missing person uh, you know something like 50,000 missing person cases since the 1980s some of those have been resolved through the years but uh i forget the percentage it's been years but yeah a startling number of people go missing in the state of alaska and for the purposes of the show we were kind of entertaining different you know theories about strange creatures like bigfoot or Lake monsters, thunderbirds. I mean, could some of some of some people at least be disappearing because of this or that? Um, we were filming one particular episode, and uh, basically, I was crossing a kind of an icy stream, and I slipped on a on a icy, mossy rock, and I broke my ankle, uh, snapped immediately, and I fell into an icy stream. And uh, <laughs> the, to m- much to my chagrin, the cameraman jumped right over and started filming me as I was. <laughs> screaming like a little girl in pain because yeah. uh, I guess you know they knew it was going to be gold footage or whatever yeah, but um, fortunately uh, the team was there and they you know made a splint for me out of driftwood and built a little uh, gurney out of their jackets and uh, I had to lay in the stream for a, a few minutes I thought I might get hypothermia after a while but but they rescued me off the uh, off the mountain and um, yeah, so that, it was kind of a bummer. I felt really bad, Ryan, because I felt you know like I just screwed the whole show. You know, like, you know, so it's like man, all these people, I just sent them all home. Um, but yeah, I would have gone missing in Alaska if I had been alone, and I'm sure those kinds of things happen to people as well. Um, but I am proud of the fact that I did have surgery almost immediately in Anchorage. I went through three months of rigorous therapy, and we were back filming three months after that. So, and we kind of picked, and it was kind of kind of funny because the uh, that particular episode we were talking about the Nahani, which are supposed to be evil spirits that are protecting gold or some territory. So we kind of. You know, they, they, the producers wanted me to kind of emphasize that storyline that, well, maybe because we were doing a, 
a, a episode about evil spirits that yeah. that's why this horrible thing happened to me which uh, oh boy. Yeah, yeah yeah i mean you look at the curse of the skinwalker yeah something that goes on with that something too. something along those lines yeah. so um yeah but um ah, well we're glad you made it out of well thank, you. You, thank you, you you didn't become an active part of the investigation you didn't become one of the which is I good. didn't, and there are a lot of reasons why people will, you know. I'm not just. I know there are a lot of theories out there, and people are fascinated with these books about, you know, missing, missing people in, in national parks and things. But um, man, there's a there's a million ways to, you know, in the wilderness, you know, in particular, as you know. I mean, people have accidents, they fall in crevasses. There's bears. There are, you know, it's pretty dangerous sometimes. And I think we, you know, we maybe take that for granted in terms of how dangerous it can be to go out into the wilderness sometimes. So. Absolutely. There's a lot of risks to it, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, well, you know, last question for you, Ken. We are a UFO podcast, so I gotta go there, man. You did touch on this in your talk. Um, I've come across reports in the Project Blue Book files of, um, you know, this correlation between people seeing a cryptid and seeing a UFO. Right. You have other researchers out there theorizing Bigfoot could be a ghost, Bigfoot could be an alien. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't land anywhere on that. I, I think all theories should be asked. Um, but what do you think of this correlation that people have made? Um, have you ever come across cases where UFOs have been seen in conjunction with Bigfoot? Um, yeah, what do you make of that whole debate? It's pretty controversial. Right? It is. And, uh, you know, I, I, I know people that, that advocate strongly for that possibility. Uh, look, uh, I'll tell you a personal story that's kind of interesting. I, I did see a UFO one time, and I was on a Bigfoot research expedition. So maybe this sounds a little hypocritical, hypocritical, but I was at a place called uh, Charles Mill Lake, which is just outside of Mansfield, Ohio, about 20 years ago, specifically because there had been sightings of Bigfoot at this lake. And uh, a colleague and I were kind of sitting there at night, and suddenly... You know, just kind of listening and waiting, and suddenly one of these, I what you guys refer to as the black triangles, this giant black triangular thing. And we'd been watching airplanes all night flying overhead, and you know, you you recognize the flashing lights, you hear the engine noise, you know, you, know, you can identify an airplane. This thing was completely silent. It was huge. I mean, we could tell it was. You know, it was hard to tell how high up it was, but it was a black triangular shape that kind of blacked out the the stars, and there were three flashing lights on each point of the triangle that were different colors. And I was like red, green. And I didn't have, Ryan, the right photographic equipment to photograph something in the sky. I wasn't expecting that. I tried to get a picture of it. I couldn't. Passed over our heads. And uh, so, yeah, so I saw a, you know, a UFO. Now I acknowledge maybe it was a military experiment or, you know, I don't, I can't say it was extraterrestrial. I couldn't identify it. Uh, I did find out later there was a famous case near Mansfield, Ohio, where a helicopter was captured in a tractor beam by a UFO, yes. allegedly. Yep. And I know there are a lot of bases up there. So anyway, so that is my, but, you know, not to say, and, you know, certainly somebody that had that confirmation bias would say, well, see, you were there looking for Bigfoot and you saw a UFO. Well, you know, let's think about this critically, okay? Right. When you're out in the woods or you're out in a desolate place at night, listening, watching, you're more likely to see unusual things, I think, you know, because yeah. you're really paying attention, you're looking around, you're trying to take everything in. And so maybe that, that played a part in that. But uh, I know that was a digression. So I'll go back to, in my personal experience, 45 years of Bigfoot research all over North America. I've interviewed hundreds of eyewitnesses. I've done field research all over the continent. I've 
work with all the, the main investigators out there. There's very little evidence that I've encountered, and it, I think we've figured out it's probably about 3% of Bigfoot encounters that hint at some kind of possible UFO connection, which I think, scientifically speaking, is a very small percentage of the, the overall evidence. Yeah. So I think, you know, people that sort of advocate the Bigfoot UFO connection may tend to emphasize those cases. But I think if you take the wide-angle view... It's not enough, at least in my opinion, to really indicate there could be a connection. But I will also say this, which is kind of an interesting theory that's come up. I don't know a lot about UFO abduction per se, but I know that that's a a theory that, that UFOs are abducting people. Might they also be abducting Bigfoots from time to time? Because Bigfoots are hominins, supposedly. They look somewhat like us. They walk upright, and so... I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, Ryan? Is it possible that maybe when people see a Bigfoot and a UFO in the same scenario, it's because that Bigfoot or Sasquatch was just taken off of a UFO? I don't know, man. I don't mean, that sounds crazy, but I mean, I love your turning the tables on me. All right, let's 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 go. Let's break this down. So, I always turn to there's this one case out of the Chestnut Range, um, yeah, uh-huh. where Heard of that. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe it was two women. Uh, were driving down a desolate road, and um, they witnessed a hominid creature um, standing upright run across the road. Harry um, run from... They almost hit it. Mm-hmm. They almost hit it. So, you know, they kind of screeching halt. The creature runs into the, the woods, and what happens? They see a craft above them go over to where this creature had just entered the woods, being down, and then they believe that it brought up the creature. Oh, wow. Okay. Disappeared out of sight. Again, but like you mentioned, that's one case. And of course, it's going to be highlighted because it was a UFO and a Bigfoot. But like you said, when you kind of take that, uh, you zoom out and look at the percentage of these things, um, you have to wonder. There's another case in, um, I believe it was Long Island, where um, this group of people saw a creature that supposedly hopped on top of their car dented the top of the car, there was physical evidence of this, um, ran off again into the woods, as they always do, and then they saw a UFO go into oh, that wow. same exact area as well. Okay. Project Blue Book actually investigated that case. Interesting. Um, but again, like you mentioned, these are two cases out of hundreds of thousands of Bigfoot reports. So you truly have to wonder, um, yeah. are they abducting, like you said, Bigfoot for some reason? Um, is it because they know how rare it is, and they want to yeah. Scientifically, uh, or they want that. they uh, want to see how they're related to us if they are related to us. Right. Uh, I've got a weird one for you, and I don't remember the the exact reference. Maybe it's one of John Keel's old books or something. But uh, there was a big uh, UFO sighting uh, in I believe Fredericton, Wisconsin, if I'm not mistaken, where a truck driver was driving down the road one morning, early morning, and there was a craft kind of either parked in the road or you know, and it was shrouded, kind of mist shrouded. And he said there was a little porthole or a window, and he could see the pilot, and the pilot was a Bigfoot. Uh, have you ever heard that? <laughs> I have not. So that would be the most, if you saw actually a Bigfoot piloting UFO, <laughs> I think that would be a pretty definitive. But again, next level. But again, these are outlier cases, Ryan. And that's, that's all I want to emphasize to yeah. people is, yeah, we all love the really weird, strange stories, and particularly when these worlds collide and we get these kind of seemingly, you know, dots connected. But... Um, 
Yeah, I, I think it's just, you know, these are outlier cases, and so we shouldn't really focus on them. We should consider them, maybe, and yeah. put them in our back pocket for later if something else comes up. But, um, you know, these are all great mysteries, you know. Absolutely. And uh, it's fun to kind of explore all the different possibilities and just speculate about it. So It is. It really is. Speculation, I think, is key, and it keeps us curious, and it keeps the mystery alive. Um, and what is life without mystery? You know uh, what I mean? Agreed. <laughs> well, Love um it. To kind of, I guess, wrap things up, Ken, uh, where do you stand? I know, you know, after you had this talk, big, uh, excuse me, Loch Ness versus Bigfoot, um, the room was kind of, you know, passionately debating, like, which is the most compelling, the most intriguing, which could be real. Um, where do you land on either of these two? Do you believe in one more than the other to be a wow. actual flesh and blood thing? Man, it's, you know, I guess it depends on the day, yeah. honestly, Ryan. I'd say, I tell people I'm 90% convinced that Bigfoot exists, and this is after 45 years of research. Uh, I think that the evidence is that compelling, but, you know, you have to leave that 10%, you know, margin of error because... You know, it's possible that it's just a crazy cultural phenomenon. I don't think that's the case. It's very unlikely, in my opinion. Um, I'd say the evidence for the Loch Ness Monster and other aquatic cryptids is right there with it. So, I'd, you know, I kind of lean towards 90% as well. I'd almost flip a coin, man. I hate, I hate to... <laughs> I'm not trying to weasel out on you. No, but uh, they're, both, they're both... If you really immerse yourself in the evidence... Uh, you can, you know, become convinced that, you know, these, these things do exist. They're very rare. Um, they, they're very elusive. Uh, in terms of the Loch Ness Monster, obviously it has the advantage of living in deep water where it's not seen very often. In terms of Bigfoot or Sasquatch, I think that they are extremely rare, but they've also adapted avoidance behaviors to not be found by humans. Um, and that they're just, as some of my colleagues call them, the ninjas of the forest. They're good at hiding. They're good at staying away from humans. And, uh, you know, I'm just hopeful that uh, one day we will find definitive evidence that one or both of these cryptids actually exist. I hope so, too, man. And, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, in terms of documentation, um, they are rare, but you have... Uh, compiled a lot of these cases in the Essential Guide to Loch Ness Monster and Essential Guide to Bigfoot. Um, so I gotta ask, where can we find everything you're doing and everything you're up to? Oh, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, all my books are available on Amazon. Uh, just type in Ken Gerhard and you sh- should go to my author page. Uh, if any of your listeners would like autographed or signed copies, they can contact me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and I'm happy to, to deal directly with, the, with them as well. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate your openness. Um, as someone who is going to be moving to Scotland in the next oh, month or so, so jealous. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna <laughs> so be reaching jealous, out to you probably every other day, man. Like, who else am I gonna turn to? Are, are you gonna to go me? to Loch Ness? Absolutely. Okay, I, I hope so, Absolutely. man. You got, you got to. You're gonna be the first to know about it. Yeah, and maybe, maybe you'll see a UFO in the Loch Ness monster, and that'll open up a whole nother debate when both of those are basically in, in view at the same yep, time. You're gonna so. have a new book. On it. It's <laughs> Ken, it has been a pleasure having me on Somewhere in the Skies, man. Thank you, Ryan. Pleasure's all mine. Hey, guys. Ryan here. The Somewhere in the Skies podcast is a labor of love every week. And with that comes many different costs to keep the show running. That's where our Patreon campaign comes in. You give what you think the show is worth. 
There's different rewards available all the time, including shoutouts on the show, early editions of main episodes, bonus episodes and content, and very soon, monthly patron hangouts, where we sit back and chat all things UFOs. So I hope you'll consider becoming a Patreon subscriber today. To learn more and to join, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. Thank you for your support and keep looking up. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Midwest Conference on the Unknown, Day 3. It's been an absolute blast seeing all the talks, meeting all the people here at the conference, and um, it's been an incredible experience. And another incredible experience I had was meeting for the very first time Joshua Cutchin, a guy I've been following for a really long time, all of his work. Um, you probably heard his ad for his new book that came out on the show last week. And um, I got to see a talk that kind of embodied what the book represents here and it, it pretty much blew my mind and I'm sure a lot of people's and had my head tilted the whole time thinking wow there might be something to this so um for the very first time on Somewhere in the Skies welcome Mr. Joshua Cutchin. Hi Ryan it's 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 a pleasure to I was gonna say it's my first time meeting you too but I guess that goes without saying yeah. right if it's um <laughs> Unless but, you do know something I don't know yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been watching you from afar <laughs> hiding behind corners and whatnot no, uh, it's it's been absolutely wonderful, and it was great. I mean, mutual admiration hour, right? I was I loved your your talk as well. Um, Thanks. And I think that I think that like focusing on the human element of this stuff is something that has been has been neglected for so long. And I see more people coming around to that. And I mean, in some ways, it ties in with a lot of my theses that we as as inhabitants of this reality and this planet are kind of behind the phenomenon. Not not that we are. You know, not that we're making it up and not that it's like all strictly aircraft from, you know, authorities and governmental organizations, but that the phenomenon is intrinsically tied to the human condition. And so I think in a lot of ways that the two presentations really played off of each yeah, other. Yeah, that's in such a, way. a good point. Yeah. Well, tell us a little, I guess, the ecology of souls, the ecology of souls, the UFO as 
something I never thought I would connect to UFOs as a death symbol. Walk us through, how did this come to be? What made you, what were the first seeds that came into your mind about this this theory that you're sort of bringing forward? Well, yeah, and I want to make it very clear that it's always a theory, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, uh, I always try to make it a point to say, look, it could be this. Yeah. And if it is this, here's the way this all fits together. But at the same time, you know, maybe I just wrote this giant book and it, it's not right, right? <laughs> but, but, you know, it's about the journey and about learning some of the symbolism and, and things along the way. So uh, two things always really stuck with me. Um, the first was the observation from Ann Streber after getting a lot of uh, correspondence from readers in the wake of communion. Um, had written down an observation about the contact experience, and she said, this has something to do with what we call death. Now, I think what we call death is, is a really interesting idea, too. Mm-hmm. Didn't have as much time to explore that, because just unpacking that one statement and how it how the uh, just death in general ref- reflects and refracts through the UFO phenomenon just ended up leading me down innumerable rabbit holes. So that was something that always stuck with me. And then the fact that there are plenty, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a majority of cases, but there are plenty of cases where people see dead loved ones uh, during their during their contact experiences, either you know, aboard craft or during periods of heavy UFO contact. So they'll be sighting UFOs and they'll see their, their dead father will come to their front door or something like that. So um, I really wanted to unpack that, but what happened when I did that was that I started finding all these older beliefs about the soul that a lot of us in modern Western society have just completely forgotten. You know, a big one is the idea that I talked about in the uh, presentation, the idea of polypsychism, the idea that there are multiple parts to us that certainly have their own degree of autonomy and might wander at will. So I was like, okay, well, I guess this book's a little bit bigger than I thought it would be. So I ended up having to split it into two because there were not only those you know older soul-based traditions that I felt like needed to be provided as background because otherwise you know you're talking about the UFO phenomenon and you're having to digress and go off on these tangents to explain it. So I'm like, okay, let's just bring everybody up to speed on some of these older ideas. But then you know I just found all sorts of other things that really compelled me to continue expanding and connections to ley lines, which have their own UFO connection, but also their own uh, spirit connection. If you look at some of the older uh, traditions that are outlined by like Paul Devereaux and folks like that, um, and, uh, ancient monuments and, and mounds and megaliths and things like that. Um, almost often rather have uh, death connections as well. So it just turned into a bunch of different things, and then, of course, there's always the fairy connection, because yeah. I always keep finding myself uh, coming back to that, those fairy connections. And uh, So, you guys, this new term I'm learning this week, phalians, blew me away. I was like, that needs to be on a t-shirt today, today, Joshua Cutchin. Well, you know, it's I, I kind of like it because... I, I always try to emphasize this because people always, I feel like, often read some of my work the wrong way. They think that I'm saying that aliens are fairies or that fairies are aliens. And I'm saying neither. I'm saying that the way that we interpret the phenomenon is always culturally bound. right? Um, but the consistencies between the fairy folklore and the UFO contact experience is so strong that I, I'm at the point now, you know, I used to hedge my bets and be like, well, maybe it's kind of similar, but like... I, if I can find something in one, I can almost always find an analog in the other, right? Yeah. But it's something that you know I sort of alluded to in the talk too is that this is kind of the the connection that haunts Passport to Magonia in a way is that you know Valley did a great job of showing how some of these older folklores connect to the alien abduction mythos, but the the question that sort of lingers in the background that didn't really go answered was well how did the older folklores think of these quote unquote non human beings? Yeah. They always almost always tied them into the dead somehow. 
and you see this in Western fairy folklore where the dead will appear alongside fairies or the dead will even become fairies in some instances. And so trying to sort out exactly how that happens is, is another big part of this. But by the transitive property, it implies to me that there would be some link between aliens and the dead if aliens are connected to fairies and fairies are connected to aliens. Right. Yeah. So maybe, again, maybe. <laughs> I, I'm glad you yeah. make that um, disclaimer. You know, I wish more UFO researchers would do that yeah. instead of I know that I know this to be true. You know just as well as I do. Any conference you go to, if there's someone up there talking and they say they have the answers to UFOs, run away. Yeah, 100%. Right? 100%. And you know, someone who actually did the layout of the book, but is also a dear friend of mine and like one of the nicest people I've ever had the chance to meet, Mike Cleland, has yep. always been a real touchstone for me on this because Mike's had some experiences that are quite harrowing yeah. and uh, are quite convincing. And yet you read Mike's work and he's always saying, it might be, it seems to be, perhaps so-and-so. To me, it seems as if, and I'm like, well, if Mike can do that and he's had these experiences with a certain degree of surety involved, then the rest of us have no excuse for not doing that. Right. So, so there's, one part in the, there's one part in Ecology of Souls where I say, okay, like, I'm not going to say might be and seems to be just to streamline this conversation for this one section of a chapter. Yeah. This is not saying it's right. It's just trying to streamline the, the text because it was sort of the part where I drove together a bunch of different threads and it was easier to say, if this is true, then this is true, and just say this is the way it is. But that's, it was couched in that sort of language. So yeah, I'm always about providing different ideas, and it's the sort of thing where, you know, even if it's not, quote-unquote, the objective answer to this, I still think it's interesting to see how many different models you can graft onto the UFO phenomenon, mm -hmm. and they still make sense. And I think that's sort of anomalous in its own right. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? You know, and... I mean, I want to kind of break down some of, some of the options you get mm -hmm. in, in your presentation and in the book. Um, you know, obviously not too much, guys. We want you to get the book. The books, I should say. Um, oh, gosh, I can't wait to dig into it. Um, but some of the things that really stuck out to me were obviously, A, the beings, the entities, the intelligences possibly behind the UFOs, uh, the craft or the uh, the... Let's not even craft so much, but the maybe the vessel. That's, that's, that's actually a really good way to put it. Yeah. yeah. Um, what about those symbologies? Did you find interesting patterns between? Let's start with the beings, I guess, a little right. bit. It, um, in terms of like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, in, in some ways, it's the most superficial um, right. comparison, right? Because right. and basically, you can sort of distill it to. The greys are quite skeletal, right? And and I, I think it, you know, I think there you you and like three other people were the people who laughed at the Roswell slide yep. <laughs> that oh I threw up God, there. Dude, but you know, I was I was, but but I think it does emphasize the point that like the gray alien is so skeletal that like when when people when researchers see a mummified indigenous boy, they say, oh, it looks like a gray alien, and that sort of shows you how the proportions are basically the same. The proportions can change and atrophy after death in right. certain ways that are very evocative of that. So. Um, and, you know, other folks like Martin Kottmeyer uh, have pointed the, these, these connections out. So there's that. Um, there's also the qualities which we attribute these occupants, which, you know, are the same suite of qualities that you would attribute to fairies or, or ghosts. Or even if you're into paranormal Bigfoot, probably mm -hmm. the same qualities you'd attribute to that. Invisibility, phasing through objects, all these sort of different things. But I also found it really interesting that a lot of the, the non-grays that you see, you know, if they're not quote-unquote space brothers, generally speaking, or they're not grays, um... They're usually Therianthropes of Earth animals, right? Ooh. And it's like, well, okay, why why are these Earth animals 
And if you unpack some of the symbolism behind some of those, you find some interesting connections between those uh, particular animals and a lot of our traditions worldwide regarding the dead. And a lot of these traditions are are quite consistent in terms of the figures and the animals that might lead you um, to the afterlife. For example, dogs, birds, and horses are always the three animals that lead you and help you make that transition. So... That's sort of a very rough and very brief over sketch of uh, sketch of the uh, the sort of occupants. But then, you know, if you look at some of these cosmologies, and I alluded to this in the presentation too, um, a lot of indigenous cosmologies don't differentiate between. Well, first of all, they they tend to view the UFO phenomenon as some sort of ancestor or spirit phenomenon. Mm. And when they do, they might see something that looks to our eyes like a craft, but they don't really differentiate between occupants and craft, and uh, you know, and and just light in general. So it's entirely possible, as in some work like Artie Sixkiller Clark's, to see people converse with a, you know a star person, a star ancestor that then changes into a light, that then changes into a craft uh, with, with with no with, you know seamless transition. So there's that, and then there's this very persistent belief that you find uh, that really you can trace all its way through, I would argue, Christianity and New Age and ghost hunting, that the, that the soul is, is a ball of light. And you find that in a lot of near-death experiences, a lot of out-of-body experiences, somehow people are able to have a third-person ex- third perspective of, of their soul, and they sort of perceive it as being like a bowling ball-sized yeah. ball of light. So I think that goes away to... Um, to sort of suggest that some of the just straight up light phenomena in the absence of structured craft might be some sort of soul phenomena. I mean, in a part of uh, the the Jeffrey Kripal was was kind enough to provide a, an endorsement of the book, and, and towards the end of his quote, it's not on the back, but it makes it in the longer quote because he gave me a long quote. <laughs> he said, "You know, if, if you're if you're trying to shoot down UFOs, you might as well be trying to shoot down souls." <laughs> that was a really interesting way to put it. Um, but even if they're souls, it doesn't necessarily mean dead people. And that's the interesting thing where things like polypsychism come in. Because during periods of trauma or illness or sleep or altered states of consciousness, it's believed worldwide that the, this aspect of your soul has a certain degree of autonomy and can wander around at will. Um, and when it wanders around at will, it's often described as, again, <laughs> a ball of light. Um, so the idea that perhaps... Um, an aspect of the witness might be projecting itself like a doppelganger might, or the idea that there might be someone who is doing something like remote viewing or meditating and projecting their consciousness, and to those who are able to see it, it appears as a ball of light, are two things to be explored. And you can find these ideas. That was something that I really tried to put in the presentation, too, was that these ideas, especially in those old Flying Saucer reviews, which always leaned a little bit more metaphysical than the yeah. MUFON journal, you can find these ideas as far back as like the 50s. Mm-hmm. And then they've been talked about, in the, but they've never really gotten a moment to shine, I think. And then there's a whole other conversation you could have about structured craft and the right. symbolism behind that. Um, and some of the stranger ideas, which I don't necessarily think are what's going on because it doesn't really jive with my metaphysics, but I have to acknowledge the fact that it's, it's a possibility is this idea of afterlife technology, the idea that the afterlife is a mirror of our world and it can technologically advance and perhaps people on the other side are making these craft to right. pierce the veil. And it's a weird idea, but it's there's shockingly more of a discussion around that than I think I, even I realized going into it. Mm-hmm. You know? And you can see the sort of vestiges of this in Tesla and Edison who were making, trying to make ways to communicate with the dead. And it's tied in a little bit to EVPs and such. 
which yeah. pick up ghosts and aliens. <laughs> By the way, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a what thing. is that that method called? Like ITC, trans instrumental communication, I believe, oh, is what okay, it's okay. called. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there was a, a famous Brazilian researcher. Her name escapes me at the moment, but she was just just picking up ghost voices, and then she started picking up extra extraterrestrial voices, <laughs> and she stopped. She like shuttered her laboratory, and then she finally got comfortable enough. And of course, they were sharing very space brothery sort of messages oh, about coming in peace and all this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, um, so yeah, that's so. Uh, in, in some ways, like the presentation last night was just a chapter of the book because I play with so many different ideas because the question still remains so open ended um, that there are a lot of different ways that you could sort of perceive it. And it's not only about death, but that's the other thing I found is that as I went through it, it's about you know death and life and rebirth and reincarnation because you can't talk about death without talking about birth, and you can't talk about birth without talking about right. you know sexual reproduction, which the phenomenon has always been it's super right. associated with yeah yeah, yeah. so what it's a sexy so, yeah, yeah. phenomenon <laughs> well sometimes sometimes, <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. yeah for for, for every available eyes you have a you have a Whitley Strieber you yep. know um, there's one case you brought up uh, towards the end of your presentation which has always struck me it's a beautiful case of where sort of culture and uh, uh, I guess a core belief system within your culture of the afterlife really took effect in terms of a UFO sighting. And that was with um, Cynthia Hines when Mm -hmm. she went to investigate this case in Africa. Um, I remember hearing about this case, and when you put that image up of the witness, it just, it hit me because I hadn't thought about that case in years. And it was, it's a prime example of how one person interprets an experience as opposed to another. A UFO researcher wanted to make it a UFO case, whereas the witness himself didn't. Um, so, did you find that sort of pattern throughout where, like, spirituality will put one lens on a UFO experience and, I guess, whatever else is anti-spirituality? Well, I, I, would, I would probably make that... Um, I'll probably draw that distinction between like the modern West and and just indigenous cosmologies because okay. yeah. th- that's what that's what I find time and again is that not only do these cultures interpret these through a spirit lens but like you know we're we're, we're cultured to be generally skeptical and all, I would argue generally ske- cynical yeah. not cynical but cynical <laughs> um, you know in, in our modern you know society here and that's part of the reason that a lot so much of Cynthia Hines research research made it into the book is because it's just a snapshot it's it's a, it's a it's a poor snapshot in the sense that there's an entire continent of Africa that we just don't talk about as ufologists right, right? I mean we kind of do but it's always in like the heavily colonialized areas yeah. and it's like you know South Africa yeah, yeah South Africa times, and yeah. you know even Zimbabwe is, has a long history right. of colonial occupation stuff so this uh, particular case that you alluded to which is again consistent with this idea of the other the afterlife evolving um, which you see in a lot of different cultures you know the, the Egyptians said that you still had to farm after you died mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah. <laughs> when will labor not be a thing yeah well. <laughs> seriously you know Monday mornings I guess yeah um, but you know you see this idea in, in some uh, Korean shamanism and stuff like that to use the term shamanism <laughs> broadly but um, yeah the Clifford Mushina case I've always thought was <clears throat> just so charming in yeah. a lot of ways I don't. I don't quite remember the date off my hand. I believe it was in the late seventies or early eighties, but it was along the Mozambique-Zimbabwe border. And he was uh, in his village, and he was 
just doing some some chores, and he sees this fireball rolling through town. And he's convinced that at first that it's a fire, and some other people are alarmed as well. So he runs to the village's alarm bell and starts ringing it. And as he does, he turns around, and he sees this ball of fire, and he's about to collapse and fall to his knees. But as he does, he sees several figures in shiny coveralls. And later he is contacted by Cynthia Hind, who who eventually kind of found the right way to ask the right questions, because she was always asking questions about UFOs and spacemen. <clears throat> and uh, the, the gentleman said, uh, describe these, these figures in these shiny coveralls. And, and she said, well, have you ever heard of astronauts? He was like, you mean like the guys who went to the moon? He's like, yeah, I've heard a little bit about that, but all of us who saw these things think that they were the ghosts of our ancestors. And Cynthia Hines said, well, with all due respect, wouldn't your ancestors be wearing something different than shiny coveralls? And Mushena apparently shrugged and said, times change, which, which, I, which I love. And, and I was, you know, I was just, I was, it's, we talk about a lot of strange and foreign ideas when we talk about ufology. Mm-hmm. But the idea that the, other, the, the afterlife is a mirror where technological development can continue apace, it's just, it's, it's so... It's almost that that stranger than we can imagine, sort of. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, but you see it. But you see vestiges of this too in like the fairy folklore, where the fairies would uh, cry at births and laugh at funerals. So the idea that like there's some sort of exchange or transmission uh, where uh, a loss in that world is a gain in this world, and vice versa, a revolving door, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It, and it it brings comfort. I mean, every culture, like it's almost this innate insanity when you're born of you have no idea why you're here like (laughs) from birth you and you're just trying to figure that out for the remainder of this existence whatever this might be Mm -hmm. and it it strikes me as interesting that like a lot of these cultures see death as the you're right a stepping off point to the next chapter and I feel like that gives you comfort in some senses. Well, you know, you know that's, that's the funny thing. My wife is like, why are you writing a book about death? No one yeah. wants to read about death. But it, but it ends up being, you know, a really, in, in my mind, a very comforting book. Because there's just, I think at the end of the day, the most uh, conservative thing that we can say is that we just don't understand what it really represents. You know? yeah. like, that's the most conservative thing that we can say. But to your point about, like, you know, being sort of embodied and forced into this reality, this is something that uh, Terrence McKenna, who, who coined the term Ecology of Souls, after which the book is named, said, you know, he's, he said that part of the reason that... <clears throat> part of the reason that the psychedelic reality is so alien to us is because we simply don't spend enough time there. The only reason that our reality is not psychedelic is because we're embedded within it. So the, the idea was that it's, it's just as legitimate uh, a reality, but the reason that it remains so alien and unfamiliar and has a sort of dream logic is because we're not there cradle to grave. Mm-hmm. And if we were, perhaps we would actually have a better understanding of that. Which brings up a whole new question of, you know, whenever... Because, you know, these entities are always surprised when they're seen, right? So is, is there some, you know, uh, alien gray in his sophomore college dorm taking D, taking mushrooms in the DMT realm or something and right. popping over here and being surprised? It's seeing us. You, know. you hear that in the supernatural realm as well. Of like, ghosts yeah, are often and, just as surprised to see us as we are. Cryptids bit. are as well, yeah. yeah. So, so it, it, I kind of wonder if there's not, you know... If that transmission isn't right. coming this way as well, it's like turning a corner and bumping into yeah. somebody. And and, and and I I would suggest that you know a good way to see whether it's bleeding through or you're bleeding through is to look for that for that missing time um, because mm. that's something that really is. Um, I mean, you, you find that sort of misperception of time 
in near-death experiences, in psychedelic trips, in the fairy lore, obviously, in the UFO lore, obviously, and even in some cryptid encounters, too. So I think that might be sort of a... You, you don't see it in ghost stories, which is really interesting to me. I yeah. look for it. Yeah. Whenever you find like missing time in ghost stories, it's almost always a time slip. And slip, I did, I did yeah. find a time slip where they perceived that they were only gone for like 20 minutes and they were gone for three hours. And, but they realized okay. it was also a time slip because like horses and carriages were going by. Right. So to me, it seems like the, the missing time is like is typically a hallmark of, of that transition. So that might be a good way, a good metric to, to judge whether or not you, you went somewhere or something came to you. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, one other thing I kind of want to touch on with you, we'll wrap things up here because we're actually going to see one of our colleagues <laughs> yeah. speak, um, uh, is you brought up Ingo Swan in one of these <laughs> cases. I, oh, I wrote about this like six years ago where he remote viewed the moon and yeah. had an interesting experience. Could you run us through that a little bit and why yeah. you decided to put it in the book? Well, you know, it's, 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 it's funny because every case that I put in the book is not necessarily endorsement of the validity of the case. It's more like to, to say, because I'm, I'm, I'm a big, I'm known for my footnotes and my endnotes, right? So it's, it's more like, you know, well, this is what's said, and if it is true, it conforms to X, Y, and Z. It's not necessarily always an endorsement. So I, I view the Ingo Swan story, even though I love it to death. Yeah. It's kind of like, really? Because it's so far out. But um, he was, the short, short version is, but he was tasked with some coordinates on the dark side of the moon, and he was surprised to find that there was an entire like mining operation more or less that was working there with, with humanoids present. And in remote viewing, it's always assumed that you can't be seen uh, by, by the people, if there are any that you're viewing. But in this case, he was seen and they turned around and they seemed to have a look of recognition on his faces. And Ingo sort of wrestled with that aspect of it for a while. He decided that if they were able to see him and he was getting a genuine vision, that they must have been psychically sensitive. Um, but the question that I always ask is like, okay, well, that's cool. How did, how did the Moonites <laughs> perceive Ingo Swan? Did they see Ingo? Did they see, as I would assume, a ball of light? And if they saw a ball of light in the sky and it was Ingo Swan remote viewing the moon, then... I mean, this is highly speculative, but, like, what's keeping an extraterrestrial civilization who, I would assume, would have discovered the same techniques of remote viewing? What's keeping them from remote viewing the Earth and appearing as lights in our sky? And then, of course, you know, the fact that you have to be psychically attuned to witness remote viewers from that other end of the the, uh, scenario kind of sit, kind of fits well with the, the heavy incidence of psychic sensitivity amongst UFO witnesses as well. So, you know. Just so many different ideas to play with. Yeah. And, that, and that's the thing is like it just turned into the gift that kept on giving. So I wanted to write one book and it turned into two books. Yeah. And it's just a function of nobody wants a book that big and I don't trust the binding to actually hold up over time. <laughs> so um, so it's volume one, Ecology of Souls and New Mythology of Death and the Paranormal, volume one, volume two. And then there is a third completely optional supplemental volume called the ecology of souls companion it's available in print if you're a completionist like me but it's also available freely on my website and it's got all the end notes um the full bibliography and it also has three appendices which are the dead who are known to experiencers who appear during ufo contact the dead who are not known which is kind of a trickier thing to figure out but there's there's some interesting stories of someone like meeting someone they give them their name and they find out later, like some researchers came along and found out that the person was in South Dakota and had died three years earlier. Mm. Yeah, so it's an interesting corroborative stories like that. Yeah, yeah. And then just a, a snapshot, and none of these are, are exhaustive, but they are they do sort of illustrate the, the tendency or the, the frequency of these these particular modalities. And the third one is um, 
UFOs seen around modern burial sites like cemeteries and graveyards. Right, which we yeah. didn't even touch on. Well, guys, you're going to have to read <laughs> the books lot. to get into that. I know. Um, well, before we go, Josh, um, last question for mm-hmm. you. What do you hope people take away from the series of books? What, do you, what was kind of your mission with this? So what I hope people would take away from this um, is that is that even though we are not a selfless species, we you know pollute the environment, we uh, tend to act selfishly. You know, selfishness is not in short supply these days. Um, I think that the phenomenon might be trying to to sort of help us refocus ourselves on ourselves, by which I mean the better parts of ourselves, right? The, the compassion, the stewardship of the environment, um, the, the immortality that is, I, I believe, at this point, our birthright, and that is a fundamental part of, of being embodied on this planet. And to realize that and to realize that um, because there's so much pressure taken off of us from what seems like this terminal end, that that actually frees us to do more good while we're here. That's beautiful, man. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Not living for death, but like dying for life almost. Well, no, anyway, no, exactly. That's, that's sort of a, a constant refrain that comes across the book, which I didn't really realize. But again, you find this in the near-death experience. You find it in a lot of you know UFO contact experiences. You find it in a ton of psychedelic trips, and you find it in stuff like the uh, you know the Greek mystery cults, like the Eleusinian mysteries. It's this refrain of die to death. So you remove death as an impediment to what you're going to do here so that you can actually start living and so that you can actually use the time that you have to seek inner peace, to learn to better the lives of those around you. And, you know, once you realize that death is not the end, to improve your standing as you continue being laundered through this ecology of souls. Couldn't. We could not wrap it up any better, my man. One more time, where can we find the book and all your work? Uh, well, I, I want to self-publish this one, so it's, it's available exclusively at Amazon. Ecology of Souls, A New Mythology of Death and the Paranormal, Volumes 1 and 2. Companion book optional. Um, you can find links to that if you can't remember that at joshuacutchin.com, J-O-S-H-U-A-C-U-T-C-H-I-N.com. I also have um, an email address where I offer um, signed copies at a discount because Amazon doesn't allow you to, to do, like, if you buy the complete series, you get a discount, but I do. So I offer a discount as well. So any of those places, reach out to me and we'll get you a copy. Awesome. Yeah. Josh, thank you for joining me on Somewhere Thanks in so the much, Skies, brother. It's been so nice meeting you. It buddy. really has. Yeah. It really has. All right, guys. Once more, I am here at the Midwest Conference on the Unknown. It's been an incredible weekend. We're on day three. Things are sort of wrapping up here. Uh, but but that doesn't mean that day three is any less important because we saw one of the best talks, I think, personally, of the conference this morning. As a UFO person, I don't tackle the supernatural often, but this presentation is... I think, what would get people into that. When you have someone like this in the world of paranormal and supernatural, you know it's in good hands. So, for the very first time on Somewhere in the Skies, I want to welcome Courtney Block, the liminal librarian. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. And thank you, seriously, so much for the words that you just said. Like, I'm trying not to tear up a little bit. I'm just so humbled and grateful to be here um, and excited to, to meet everybody here at this conference. And also really glad that the presentation came off that, that way. So yeah. thank you for saying that. My pleasure. And, like, your talk, um, for those who aren't here, was at 10 a.m., which is hard. 
at a conference. Everyone's waking up. Um, they're on their first coffee of the day. And um, I've been there. I've been there. So the fact that you had a really good turnout and people were engaged, um, it says something. And I think it says something about the topic, too, that you covered. Um, so let's start there. Can you tell us a little about your presentation, you know, maybe the Cliff Notes version? And then we'll dive a little deeper after that. Yes, yes. And I'd like to point out, too, that I'm not a morning person either. So <laughs> when I saw that, I was like, okay, I'm just going to be a master of illusion about it and just try to keep my energy up. But yeah, it was a great turnout. So um, the presentation was half of an, uh, an introduction to the history of paranormal research, primarily focused on early psychical research of the 1800s through the early 1900s. And I touch on modern efforts as well. And then the second half of the presentation was a workshop, kind of, uh, where I presented resources and databases completely free that people can access to find more information, not only about the psychical things that I talked about, but all of the other things like that you talked about, UFO incidents and all the other things that people have talked about here. So I just want to know... I. I just wanted people to know that there are resources that they can access completely free wherever they are to find really great primary sources and secondary sources so that they can research the weird wherever they are. Right. Well, and you know what's funny? I, you know, the first time I ever read a UFO book was a book I took out from the library. And it's been so long since then that it didn't dawn on me until today. And I, you know, we live in the age where, like, you click a button, the book's there in, like, a day, or you just download it. Yes. And you you see, and I'm sure as a librarian, um, you've seen that landscape change drastically. Um, you know, my father works in the printing company, and it's the same thing. You're kind of like, how much longer can something like this last, even books in print? you know, at this point. So I'm sure it's, it's a liminal experience in some ways, but, um, I guess maybe tell us a little about, yeah, that, like that whole, the importance yes. of libraries, especially when it comes to these topics have you thoughts. always see in the movies, yes. you know, like everyone goes to the library to research <laughs> what ghost it. is there. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that observation and the opportunity to answer this. Um, although sometimes people joke like, oh my gosh, don't get her started on libraries or she'll <laughs> never shut up. Um, but yeah, so libraries have always been liminal. I, I really firmly believe that. Um, there have been so many different media over the years. You've got books on cassette were once a thing, and then books on CD. And then uh, now we've got streaming books that you can access through the library. So in a way, there are so many, so many instances in which you are using the library without even physically being in the library. That's sort of the world that we're in now. Um, so libraries have always been really good at adapting to change, and we're going to continue to adapt to change. And one of the things that I really also love about libraries is not only the resources that they provide to people completely free of charge, because like I said, disposable income is a privilege, and the ability to be able to purchase books comfortably um, is a privilege, and um, not only books, but just databases that nobody has the ability to to, pay, to get a subscription to like the historic New York Times, unless you're, you know, super rich or whatever. Um, but also just the spaces that libraries provide 
It's also a very liminal thing. And I think it's a radical thing because where else in society can you just go and you don't have to have a reason to be there? Nobody's going to question you. You can literally sit at a table all day if you want Mm -hmm. and just be at the library. Um, And I think that in, in this society where so much is, you know, very consumer driven, very capitalist, I mean, Libraries are an active rebellion. They are liminal spaces, and I could go on. Yeah, yeah. no, it's a fascinating um, issue and topic. Yeah. Um, and what else I found fascinating about your talk is, you know, in the world of paranormal, from someone on the outside looking in, um, when you see how it's handled in entertainment or a lot of the demographic, you often see a lot of just, and it's the same in the UFO world, just white males. And um, what I loved about your talk is you highlighted the work of a lot of female cyclical researchers and, um, and some that weren't from the Western world even. Uh, could you mind touching on maybe one or two of these individuals who you yes. highlighted? They were really interesting people. Thank yeah. you. Rebels in their own in their own way. Yes, yeah. yes, and also liminal figures because they get overlooked so much. Um, so one of the uh, ladies that I talked about was Mary Boole, who was actually a founding member of the British Society for Psychical Research, but she's almost never mentioned. People talk about you know Frederick W. H. Myers and Frank Podmore and like these other men, uh, but Mary Boole was a founding member of the society for psychical research uh, when it was formed in 1882 and she was only on the board for a few months though because her official reason for leaving was that she was the only female member on the board so we can sort of infer from that maybe we don't know exactly what she meant necessarily by that um, or how that sort of played out in her time on the board but that is why she left but she was a self-taught mathematician Um, she wrote books about psychical topics especially for mothers Uh, there's I can't remember the title of her book but she wrote a book that was specifically geared towards like mothers like new mothers um, and psychical topics yeah and you can read it online and then another figure which uh, who is fascinating is Tomokichi Fukurai, who is a Japanese parapsychologist who for a long period of time uh, had a seminal textbook on hypnosis and introduced the concept of thoughtography uh, in Japan. But unfortunately, uh, his case is a little bit of a sad one. Pe- people can look into it. Uh, but after his downfall, unfortunately, parapsychology didn't gain uh, another foothold or interest in within the academy in Japan for another 30 years. So it's always been a tenuous field. Yeah. So yeah. he was ahead of his time. Yeah. You know, you always hear these stories of like those who have to step on the landmines mm-hmm. for the rest of us to run forward. Yeah. So he, he was a true pioneer, I think, especially in Japan. Right. I would assume. Um, and he had sort of a connection to The Ring, am I right? One of yes. my favorite movies. Yes. Yeah. I came across an article, and in the article, the author was referencing the just Tomokichi Fukurai's life and work, and also the fact that he was the inspiration for the storyline with the researcher uh, doing the psychical studies and so forth in The Ring. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Ringu, check it out, guys. Either the American or Japanese version. Um yeah. 
Another interesting thing is, you know, we saw Ken Gerhardt talk about Bigfoot yesterday, and he brings up the plaster casts, like some of the best evidence we have of Bigfoot are these footprints that we find. And you also talked about plaster casts. What is that? I, I, that's something I've never heard in the paranormal world. Yes, that is a wild example. So I talked about plaster castings in the seances of the Polish medium Franek Kluski. And he was investigated by French psychical researcher Gustave Gallet, who during uh, the seances where these strange, anomalous hands and feet would materialize. And Gustave Gallet was like, wait a minute. I need a mold of those <laughs> hands and feet. And I imagine in much the same way that you would cast a print of a supposed Bigfoot, yeah. they were molded during the seance. Yeah. So it is a bit of a wild example. It's crazy. Um, well, and the thing, you know, a lot of um, these old conferences were very um, stuffy. Lectures were like, you know, they put... 10 paragraphs up on it and you're like sitting there like reading it you're like what is the point of this but what i loved about your talk is there was very little text in a lot of images where you would um tell stories and you also found a lot of really old stories digging in the archives um and they were very um a lot of them were very endearing and funny which again is a part of all this the weirdness we have to live in that you know it, it's not all sad and depressing or scary like there's moments of levity in a lot of this too um could you point out maybe one of those stories that kind of made us all chuckle yes there was one story this isn't necessarily paranormal but it's paranormal adjacent because there was a story in the late 1800s maybe early 1900s from this cape Girardeau area where uh, there was a little boy who had just been sleepwalking and i guess he had a white uh, dressing gown or nightgown and was kind of scaring people who thought that there was a ghost or something and then uh the news article says one brave person uh stepped forward and realized it was just little Ned Stewart, I think was his name, and he was just sleepwalking. And uh, But the headline was like, ghost, you know, is not, or not a ghost or something like that. And that was sort of funny. And then another one uh, that kind of made us chuckle was a late 1800s newspaper article out of Philadelphia, Philadelphia, sorry, who... Um, that outlined two gentlemen who were uh, renting a room at a boarding house. Uh, one of the gentlemen woke up late one night, claimed that he saw a ghost on a cloud who smacked him in the face and exploded through the ceiling. And that is how it's worded. And that just the synopsis is amusing and makes you chuckle, but you have to like I have to send you the article because the original article goes into such detail it literally had me laugh crying yeah. and I kind of feel bad because this, this poor guy gets like smacked in the face and yeah. he's like I think in the article it says smacked so hard he gets laid out and I'm just like oh my gosh <laughs> but it's just it's it's almost unimaginable it's so wild and descriptive the article and so yeah, yeah. and a lot of those articles are you yeah. find like a poetry and kind of like a almost like a setup of like a shakespearean play yeah. and an arc yes. to them which yes. you don't see in journalism a lot these no. days um and you know you mentioned smacked in the face i often use that as kind of like an analogy of how these phenomenon um 
do smack us in the face when we least expect it. Uh, but in this case, it was literal physical smacking in the face. Literal. It's that newspaper article is so wild because you can clearly tell those two guys, those poor guys had a night. <laughs> and I think they end up like pushing their beds to like one side of the room together because the the other one wakes up because of all the chaos happening and mm-hmm. sees the guy like sliding out of bed and it's just it's insane. Oh gosh. Yeah. Well, I know you have a lot of stories in the books that you've written as well. I'm looking right now at the feminine macabre and that title obviously I'm sure catches a lot of people's attention um and the cover's beautiful obviously um but tell us a little about um the books that you've written if you don't mind yes thank you so um I have an essay in the feminine macabre which is a collection of essays that are contributed by women in the paranormal on a wide variety of topics my essay is in volume three of feminine macabre um that is produced and put together by Amanda Woomer at Spook Eats. Mm, And um, my article is about the perils of representation in the early historic literature about psychical uh, research. For example, I talked about in my presentation how uh, the seminal sort of American parapsychologist J.B. Ryan His wife was also a parapsychologist. She was also a doctor. She got her PhD three years before he did. But in the historic literature, she's often only referred to as Dr. J.B. Ryan and Mrs. Ryan. She's not even referred to as a doctor. It's not the doctor's Ryan. It's, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so I talk about the perils of representation when you're digging through the historic literature. Um, Just things to be aware of when you are engaging with older resources um, so that you can understand just the, you know, the context uh, and the societal sort of norms at that time period. Um, But my other book is, um, well, that was just an essay rather. My first book is Researching the Paranormal. It came out in June of 2020, so it was really interesting to be finishing a book like in the yeah. midst of the height <laughs> of like you know the pandemic. Um, and basically, it's a compendium of resources that summarize and present decades worth of research from scientists uh, and others who have done studies about all sorts of things: ESP, psychokinesis, um, poltergeist. Uh, cryptozoology, uh, ghost hauntings, all sorts of things to just highlight to people that there are credible people who are doing really creative, credible research. Um, and, And in my book, I'm not trying to convince you of anything. I'm not trying to change people's minds. I'm just presenting the long history of paranormal research because it can be really hard to find credible information about anything, but especially about the paranormal. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's what um, books and libraries afford us is sort of that um, untainted kind of um, crowd sourcing of information yeah. that often, I mean, you ask anyone like how they do their research and like, I go to Google, I go to Wikipedia 
and you're just like, oh God, here we go. But when you actually put the legwork in and go research your local town and find out the history or what paranormal cases or investigations have taken place there, um, where else can you find those resources? You know, we think we have it good with one click of a button to search for something, but in reality, um, at least for me, I love going to the library, smelling the books, digging yes. through, going through the, the microfiche, if they still even exist. Yes. I don't know. Yes, okay, okay, good, <laughs> good. And, um, and doing the work. And that's yeah. what I respect about what you do and a lot of the, um, the very credible researchers still do that sort of stuff. Right. So it's very important. Thank you. And, and just a, a little bit of a defense, maybe, for Wikipedia. <laughs> but I understand what you're saying, definitely. Um, but as a librarian, I will use Wikipedia sometimes mm-hmm. uh, because the references and the footnotes can be really great places That's a good point. to start. Yep. Um, of course, you would never want to cite or rely just on the Wikipedia article, yeah. which is what you were saying. Um, but yeah, the references and the endnotes can be really great places to start. When I help students with their various research projects at my university, um, they throw out such wonderful events and topics and stuff. And I'm just like, wow, I had I don't know about this. Let me Wikipedia it real quick and get familiar and look at the footnotes and get started. Um, and then also, too, yes, everything that you just said, yes, about the physical resources um, in the archives of libraries and microfilm and things that have not been digitized and that are only accessible um, in certain ways. But but also, I just really wanted people to know that there's so many databases that you can find information from the click of a button through um, the Chronicling America Historic Newspapers with the Library of Congress, the Directory of Open Access Journals, um, where you can find scholarly studies about, you know, ESP or ghost haunting, just or just even other non-paranormal related things. Um, Hathi Trust, which is a great archive.org. Yeah. Yep. There's a lot. Well, and you you presented those resources again to people who can go use these for free, which yes. I think is a very um, a very good thing. Um, information shouldn't be behind a paywall. To an extent, I understand a newspaper needs to survive, therefore subscription, but... um but a lot of it, like you said, you have the right to have information yes. Yes. as a human being. Yes. Um, so I really appreciated that. Um, there was one other thing I wanted to touch on with you. We talked about this last night, and you presented this today, is um, you did include UFOs in your talk, too. Yes. You mentioned the now famous, now famous, the famous uh, MIT conference that took place. Yes. Um, could you maybe run us through the Cliff Notes version of what that was and why yes. you decided to include that in your talk? Yes. So the MIT Abduction Study Conference was held in June of 1992, I believe, and it was organized by John Mack, who you talked about in your presentation. So when I was listening to your presentation and you started talking about John Mack, I was like, yes, I talk about that dude too. Um, and then David Pritchard, who was uh, with MIT, and basically uh, both John Mack and David Pritchard realized that 
but people uh, have been and are continuing to report these abduction experiences and the numbers are staggering. Numbers of reports are staggering and these people appear to be of sound mind with no ulterior motive or personal benefit. And so they basically just said, hey, this topic is worthy of inquiry and let's have a conference about it where we invite the people who have experienced these things, but also invite other uh, psychologists and people from uh, Jenny Randall's from the British um, British UFO uh, research. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they, you know, she was there. Uh, they had emergency personnel, people who were there, who would often be the first line of people that had maybe gone to the hospital in the aftermath of an abduction event. Oh, they had all types of, I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> they had all types of people. And the reason that I talked about that is because. I think it is such a wonderful example of the intersection of the strange and anomalous and the academy because you have these two guys from Harvard and MIT, the academy intersecting with this really sort of strange, if you will, fringe topic of abductions and UFOs and the two things can work together. Right, and that's kind of what this conference has um, embodied, is we can all share information. And there might be some intrinsic link between ghosts and UFOs and Bigfoot. And a lot of researchers don't think so, and I respect that. Like, they're, they're focused on what they want to look into. But I think for a lot of people here, they're just looking for answers, no matter what ghosts or Bigfoot or UFOs are and um, that's what I loved is like we went to a haunted house last night and you've got like three or four UFO researchers here so that's when we gain an appreciation for the research being done in other facets of the unknown yes in my opinion I don't know what how do you feel about this whole idea of everything being possibly linked I am open to it I think that we don't know what we don't know and I think that There's nothing wrong with specializing in your particular areas, uh, being drawn to the topics that you're drawn to. Like if you're more drawn to UFO uh, stuff than you are, you know, ghosts, absolutely nothing wrong with that. I think the only harm that comes from that is when you're closed off to discussion and possibilities and, and or are actively trying to censor or... silence you know uh, other people just because maybe they focus they think something is a ghost and you think it's a ufo and you know the yeah those are the only times when i think it's harmful but um i don't think there's i'm into the idea of all things being uh interconnected because i think that there is a lot that can be gained from the inquiry of the possible multi and interdisciplinary uh, interdisciplinariness of it all. Yeah. And it's just fun to muse about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know. It's fun. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. And that's kind of what I took away from this entire event. Yeah. You know, it yeah. was fun. It was in enlightening. And um, I know already they're planning another conference next year. So um, I'm so happy I finally got to meet you. Likewise. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you and your work. And um, please, before we go, let us know where we can find everything you're up to. 
Yes. Okay. So my second book comes out in September. That is the Encyclopedia of Parapsychology. Uh, and it is a decade by decade annotated bibliography of research done on parapsychology. Also provides biographical sketches of historic researchers, modern researchers, and then the mediums themselves and the people who are often at the center of these cases. Uh, that's primarily what's next for me. I'm also on sabbatical this semester, so I'm excited to do more things like this conference. I'm going to meet up with um, a group of other contributors to the Feminine Macabre in November. Oh, cool. I'm so excited about that. And uh, people can find me. I'm primarily active on Instagram at liminal.librarian. Amazing. The Liminal Librarian. Courtney, thank you so much for joining me on Somewhere in the Sky. Thanks for having me. Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.